it's my privilege tonight to get to speak to you. And uh, so we're, let's get started. I want to talk to you about a different kind of standing. That's my title for this evening, A Different Kind of Standing. And what I'm going to talk to you about is the story of a man named Mephibosheth. How many of you have heard of Mephibosheth? Okay, so a few of you. So Mephibosheth is one of those characters that lies buried in the long texts, narrative texts in the Old Testament, and sometimes we'll miss it or we'll be listening to our Bibles and uh, we'll hear that for a few verses and then uh, we'll move on to something else and we kind of miss some of these great stories that are contained in the Old Testament that the Lord wants to use to speak to us. I happen to really, really enjoy Old Testament and the Old Testament stories and narrative. I learn a lot from them, and in fact, I kind of major on them in my own study life, um, more so really than the Gospels. And um, of course, I do love the epistles uh, in the New Testament, but uh, I always uh, find myself gravitating more to Old Testament narrative. And so, back in the middle of February when I spoke last, I... Uh, talked about the concept of hesed. I don't know if anybody remembers that. It's a Hebrew word that encompasses the concepts of grace and kindness, truth, covenant love, faithfulness. God wants to display his hesed to us. It's usually paired with another Hebrew word, emet. And uh, so it's uh, God's covenantal faithfulness and merciful truth. Amen. And so tonight I want to explore the concept of hesed just a little bit more, as well as explore ways in which we can read scripture and understand the underlying truths that the Lord conveys to us. It's, it's not only important just to read the Bible, but to look for clues and cues as to what uh, the purpose is behind the narrative in the Bible. And uh, rather than just mine it for your favorite verse or your favorite concept or something, uh, we need to let the whole context of Scripture speak to us and give us principles to lead life. Amen. And so I'm going to read uh, several verses to you. Actually, we're going to read about uh, 14 or so verses. Um, and so we're going to start first in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. So if you have your physical Bible or your electron Bible. Then uh, look at 2 Samuel 4, 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. Kind of starts out bad, doesn't it? And uh, he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was, everybody say it, Mephibosheth. Good. You did good. All right. 2 Samuel 9 is where we're going now. And of course, you can follow it on the screen. And David said, and I want you to pay particular attention uh, to the embolded text, all right? Pay particular attention to that embolded text. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. The word kindness in Hebrew is chesed. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. 
And the king said to him, are you Ziba? Notice the king is emboldened. Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. Smart man. And the king, bolded, is there, said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness, bolded, the hesed of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still the son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Important to note that. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. That's a mouthful. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, Amiel at Lodabar. Take your pick on how you pronounce that one. And Mephibosheth, bold text, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, <clears throat> came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Important phrase there. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant? that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Verse 9, the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, he called Ziba, rather, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at, the, at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. Or Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And the closing phrase, now he was lame in his feet. So here's a little bit of background to this interesting story. In 1 Samuel chapters 8 to 31, King Saul first honors David and then becomes jealous of him after David's victory over Goliath in chapter 17. Saul is the people's choice for king, and he's anointed as such by Samuel. Saul attempts to kill David later in his jealousy, and he chases after him. David and Saul's son Jonathan form a covenant friendship. Jonathan warns David and saves his life as a result of their covenant, Saul and Jonathan both die as a result of a battle with the Philistines at Mount Gilboa. In 2 Samuel, David establishes his kingly house, ultimately as king over all Israel. And in 2 Samuel 9, David begins again to honor his covenant that he made with Jonathan and to show kindness to Jonathan and to Saul's family. And David had also pledged earlier to Saul that he would not wipe out Saul's family. The scripture is rich with contrasting characters. 
just a little more background. I want you to think about this. Genesis starts with the first Adam. Everybody say the first Adam. So he reigned as a king in his own garden, right, until he fell. Then he was thrown out of the garden. Jesus in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15 is called the last Adam, the second man and the last Adam. He is the one who represents the faithful son who fulfills all of his father's will and does not fall. He brings life and redemption as a result of his obedience to the father's will as he dies on the cross and rises again. But the first Adam, from him comes death and sin because ultimately he was an unfaithful king, right? He was king of the garden and told to rule over it, subdue it. So he had some kind of a royal status attributed to him by his creator. But then when he disobeyed, he lost that royal status and was thrown out of his own kingdom, so to speak. Then we have the contrast in Scripture between, and this type of contrast goes all the way through Scripture. This is part of an understanding the overall, what we call the meta-narrative or the mono-myth, as some people would call it. We understand the meta-narrative of Scripture. So we have Cain, and who is the unfaithful, the evil, the sinner, and we have Abel, who is righteous. We have Ishmael, the son of the flesh, and we have Isaac, the promised son. We have Esau, again, a son of the flesh. And we have Jacob, who is a faithful son, whom God blesses. They all have their idiosyncrasies. And when you apply, um, you apply meaning to types and, and characters and symbols in the Bible, you have to realize that the analogies break down at some point, right? So while we see the overall picture of the contrast between the good and the bad, the righteous, the unholy, the faithful covenant keepers and those that aren't, there are some cases where eventually the analogy, the, the symbol, the type breaks down. And so we have to think of like David. So he was a man after God's own heart. He, you know, was... Uh, the sweet psalmist of Israel, a faithful king who honored his covenant with Jonathan, but then broke his covenant and committed adultery. What made him righteous again, though, was his confession of sin and God's faithfulness to forgive him of his sin. Amen? So we have then Saul, who started out as head and shoulders above everybody else and was the choice of the people and yet was rejected because of his disobedience and rebellion to the word of the Lord through the prophet Samuel. But then we have David who represents the faithful son. So let's talk now about Mephibosheth, just kind of continuing these concepts a little bit. About Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, is only, as we just read in chapter four, verse four, five years old at the time when both his dad and his grandfather are killed in battle. Mephibosheth's nurse tries to flee, fearing retribution on Saul's family line because most kings in the ancient Near East, when they came to power, began, began a campaign to destroy all potential rivals. And so it was not uncommon for them to just kill the families off of either the, the, the previous king or 
would-be rivals who were appearing on the horizon. So it's not unusual for Mephibosheth's nurse to be concerned about the survival of Mephibosheth as she hears about the death of Saul and Jonathan. It meant that Mephibosheth had lost all of his potential for assuming the throne at some point unless it was by, you know, by a violent hand that he overcame David and his family. But it meant also that Saul lost uh, and Jonathan as a result of their death at Mephibosheth. There were also two other sons that were killed with uh, Saul and, and Jonathan. But Mephibosheth lost the rights to his own property and farms and everything else. So he ends up going across the Jordan River and settling in Lodabar. They fled to Lodabar, but in the process of time, when, when the nurse picked the child up and was running somehow, the, the scripture doesn't give us all the details, but somehow he fell and his, both of his feet were messed up really bad. He was lame the rest of his life. He had to be looked after, which is a very difficult process in the ancient Near East especially because it was their attitude that people who were handicapped or whatever would just be left. They weren't cared for, except among the covenant people of God. The Romans, for example, if they didn't want a child, they would, if they had a baby, they would just, and they didn't want it, perhaps it was a girl or something like that, they would just lay it out on their front porch to die. It was called exposing the child. But it was the early Christians who, out of compassion, came and rescued those children. And it's highly significant. But anyways... So they fled to Lodabar. Lodabar may be the same name as Lodabir, which was located in the Valley of Accor. Does that ring any bells? Joshua, Achan, who stole stuff, kept it, hid it in his tent, did, did bad, it was a bad deal, right? And Joshua makes, you know, and through prophetic revelation, they understand that Achan did the bad thing. So Achan and his whole household were killed in the Valley of Accor. The Valley of Accor means the Valley of Trouble. All right, so there was trouble. So that's where Debir is. Lodabir means no pasture or no sheepfold. Lodabar, the name of Debir may have been changed to Debar at some point. They're, they're unsure. Means no word or no thing. Devarim means the words, right, in Hebrew. It's the Hebrew, Hebrew word for words, devarim. And so lo is the negating participle. Lo, debar, means no word or nothing. So Mephibosheth loses his father's inheritance as a result of his death, is made lame at the age of five, lost his parents, and they run essentially outside of the bounds of the normal place in Israel, the normal tribal allotment, they settle in either the valley of trouble or in the place where there's no pasture and no word. And he's lame. This guy is having some problems, don't you think? Right? Hang with me. Hope I'm not boring you. Mephibosheth was crippled at five years old. Uh, his dad, Jonathan, was 
thank the Lord, a covenant friend of David. He had essentially lost everything. He had lost his kingly inheritance, as I said, and his ability to function in the physical world. He was dependent on others. One meaning of his name, Mephibosheth, means from the mouth of shame. One of his relatives was Ishbosheth. And that has, its root has to do with shame as well. So he was surrounded by shame. He was marked and rejected by the sin of Saul because Saul was rejected because he disobeyed the Lord. He eventually dies in battle or is mortally wounded in battle and then perhaps either kills himself or is slain by an Amalekite. When he met David... He called himself a dead dog, which is the lowest of the low. Dogs in the ancient Near East were not your friend. They were not your best buddy. They did not live with you. They were just running free and causing havoc anywhere they could, trying to survive. That's a bad deal. In some ways, I just want to say that Mephibosheth's experience is is he had a really tough go didn't he you know I mean he was poor he lost everything he was land living in the land of nothing with no word from God he had to be looked after by other people even the very nurse that was assigned to him tripped and fell he broke both his feet this guy had a long list of problems I don't know if you ever felt like you have a long list of problems but I want you to know that this is not the end of the story. God wants to help us work through the difficulties of life and to believe him for good things. So let's look at the text just a little bit. And I want to encourage you that when you look at the scripture, first of all, see the structure of the scripture. Ask questions of the scripture. Ask what is the context? As we heard Pastor Ron say uh, a couple of weeks ago, the context is king. Contextus est rex. What is the author doing with what he is saying? This is a great question. So that when you read the Bible, ask yourself, because it was written with purpose and intent, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, holy men of God wrote as they were born along, carried along by the Holy Spirit. This stuff, this, this wasn't invented out of thin air for your, your entertainment. Amen? Jesus opened their eyes uh, so that they could see in the scriptures all things in the Psalms and, the, and in the prophets and in the law concerning himself. Amen? So ultimately, all of Scripture, including the Old Testament, is talking to us about Jesus. So we have to ask, what is the author doing with what, is he, what he's saying? What's the intent of the author? What is the underlying message or content? And I do recommend How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler. Encourage you to read it. It'll teach you how to read a book, including the Scripture. In the passage in 2 Samuel 9, even when we read it in English, you can spot some of the important concepts, which I tried to bold, that convey meaning. So kindness or hesed, 
This occurs three times in the passage we read. The king, or King David, occurs 11 times. Most of them uses the word king when David is talking to Ziba, the servant of Saul. When he's talking to Mephibosheth, the author uses the word David. So in some sense, David is represented as having compassionate standing and relational interaction with Mephibosheth. With Ziba, he's giving commands. He's telling him what to do. He stands as the king. With Mephibosheth, it's David. Interesting. Eat at my table occurs four times. Four times the narrative says, Mephibosheth's going to eat at my table. David is used six times. Crippled and lame occurs twice. So let's quickly then look at the application. What have we said so far? Like Mephibosheth, like Adam. We are made lame through a fall. Amen? This is true. Sin resulted from the fall, the disobedience of Adam. The nurse of the law, the nurse of the law, think about it, is unable and ineffectual to make us presentable or even to prove allegiance to the king in the face of our rebellion and that of our brothers. The nurse of the law makes us run in fear and our fall makes us lame. The fear of being inadequate, what you are, what you have, isn't enough, is what the devil used when he said, well, you, you're going to be like gods. You're going to know good and evil. It's to overcome God's truth so you won't die. You'll be made wise. It's a precursor to the fall that produces our lameness and inability before God and our fellow humans. The devil wants to make us think we're going to gain something by making the wrong choices. But in point of fact, he's trying to cause us to lose our kingship. We can end up as victims caught up in the schemes of our own deception, our even well-intended nurses. For example, Paul says in Romans 7, using the idea of a nurse or a nursemaid, what the Greek calls a pedagogue, right? The law was holy, just, and good, says Paul, but it only brought death because we were unable to keep it. Like Mephibosheth, we're trapped by the sins of our fathers, Saul. We are left hiding in fear from the greater Davidide, Jesus. We are unaware of the new covenant that's already made provision for us. The even greater David shed his own blood of the covenant and is a faithful king who keeps covenant. We tremble and hide, hide away from judgment. But the covenant has already made provision for us as if when we believe and accept the hesed, the covenant love and faithfulness of the Lord through our David, who is Jesus Christ. Now there is a type in shadow that, that also depicts, um, depicts 
David as the king, as the father, the heavenly father. Jonathan as the son because he gives his life in covenant that makes provision for his following family. Amen? There is that aspect of the type and shadow, but you just have to be careful. You can see it, rejoice in it, understand it, but you have to be careful how far you stretch some of these types and symbols, right? Isn't it beautiful? It's beautiful. The law is the nursemaid who fails in her attempt to save Mephibosheth from impending doom. The law was our pedagogue, Scripture says, our nursemaid to bring us to Christ. So the end of the law is Christ. It's all meant to push us to faith in Jesus. That's really important. And sometimes we're just unaware that the Lord has made a covenant. That's why we need to tell people the gospel, right? We just need to tell them. Like Mephibosheth, our name is associated with shame. His name means one who scatters shame or from the mouth of shame. And we are unable to come on our own to the king's table like Mephibosheth. He's lame. He needs somebody to bring him even into the presence of David. And there, hear the gospel. We are unable to extricate ourselves from our own lameness and inability that's caused by our sinful nature and unrighteousness. Like Mephibosheth, we are handicapped by our own sin nature. And we're living in the land of nothing. We fool ourselves and think we have provision for life or for even eternal life because of our own works or because we have other things to comfort us in the middle of our lameness. But without Jesus, we have no hope of eternal life. There's no word east of Jordan outside the promised land proper. Living on the wrong side of the tracks from a rebellious family history whose grandfather was in rebellion against God and was rejected by God. We're in a painful state as a result of the actions of others that we could not help. Even in our state, sometimes we, we suffer even from the well-intended actions of others. We are lied about by ourselves and those of our own household. Later on, Ziba told David, well, well Mephibosheth didn't want to come when, when David is driven out during the rebellion of Absalom. He tells David, well, Mephibosheth didn't want to come. He's thinking that he's going to inherit the kingship again because he sees you on your way out. That's what Ziba told David. It was a lie. Sometimes we're lied to and accused by other Zebas of the house of Saul. And we expect due judgment. The nursemaid of the law only makes us realize we need Jesus. The law was our guardian, our nursemaid, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Galatians 3.24. 
Only the grace, the hesed, the covenant kindness of our heavenly faithful King Jesus can change our status, elevate us, and bring us to his table. Mephibosheth called himself a dead dog. And we think, man, he had a really poor uh, concept, self-identification. He had a really, you know, it was bad, right? Everything bad. You've met people like that, right? You know, where life is not good, even what's good they can't see because it's just been bad. They can't reconcile the fact of moral evil or spiritual evil or natural evil being present in a world where God is ultimately sovereign and good. But we can come to the reconciliation point when realize when we realize that Jesus paid the penalty of moral evil, spiritual evil, and natural evil when he died on the cross for our sin. He bore it all. And then he rose from that and conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave as we heard on Easter Sunday morning. Mephibosheth calls himself a dead dog. What he's doing, though, it's highly significant to me that the narrator, the writer of this story, puts down that Mephibosheth called himself a dead dog. Do you know why? Because if you'll think back in the history of David's relationship with Saul, there was a time when David snuck into a cave when Paul was, Saul was relieving himself and he cuts off a corner of the skirt of Saul. And they go back outside and David says to Saul, only God's grace, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, delivered you from me this day because the Lord told me I should not touch the Lord's anointed. Scared Saul. And one of the things David says to Saul is, why are you coming after me? I'm just a flea. I am nothing but a dead dog. Mephibosheth, I think, is appealing to this memory in David's heart and asking him, to show kindness and forbearance of due judgment, recalling the moment that David was told by the Lord not to bring judgment against the anointed of the Lord. He humbled himself to that point and appealed to David based on David's own experience with the Lord. And David, I think, heard it. Something clicked in his heart and gave him even more reason to have compassion. The scripture says this in Titus 3, 4 to 7, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not by works of righteousness, the nursemaid of the law, that we have done but on the basis of his mercy through the washing of the new birth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us in full measure through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so since we have been justified by his grace, we became heirs with the confident expectation of eternal life. David did not leave Mephibosheth as an abandoned, condemned orphan. Jesus, our faithful king, doesn't leave us abandoned, condemned, or orphaned either. 
Jesus told his disciples just before he went to the Father, I will ask the Father and he will send you or give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The scripture says in Romans, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Can you imagine Mephibosheth's heart as he's told by David, could it be, is it real? Is this thing really happening to me? Here I am, I, I have no resources on my own and David's restored all of my father's lands back to him, giving me a house full of servants who can bring the produce even to the king's table. I get to eat at the king's table every single day. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Out of the house of shame, out of severe loss and physical handicap, God has redeemed me and brought me to his banqueting table. He invites me to partake of the bread and the wine and stand in covenant relationship with, with the David of the house, the King Jesus. He plucked me out of the miry clay, put my feet on a rock. Jesus, our faithful David, seeks for ways to show his kindness, calls us to himself, changes who we are, gives us the right and privilege of family membership, allows us to eat at his table, gives us provision, gives us an inheritance, calls us to show and share his chesed, his covenant kindness and faithfulness to others. And that's what we need to do every one of us, amen? If we've been shown God's kindness, his hesed, and we ourselves have experienced his covenant love, then we need to help other people. We need to tell them the gospel. We need to tell people God loves them. We need to tell them Jesus is a better way. We need to tell them you can't work your way to heaven. You can't be good enough. You need Jesus. He's already paid the way. The covenant is yours. You can be a child of God today. And we need to share it with the poor and the downcast as we're doing all over the world and right next door. We need to share it with everybody we meet, this beautiful message of restoration and kindness and grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. Settle it in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.